subject of reincarnation is usually not something which uh, rabbis talk about. Uh, it's usually something which we are not familiar with as being part of Judaism at all. And uh, that's unfortunate, because there is an entire dimension of Judaism, the spiritual dimension of Judaism, which uh, to a great degree has been ignored uh, for a couple of hundred years. And uh, it is very good that there's an interest in uh, learning about it again. Uh, partially that's due to the fact that a lot of Jews have gone to other places to look for these things. Uh, people have gone in search of mysticism to the Far East. Uh, people have gone in search of mysticism into different, uh, different religions, different cultures. And uh, indeed, the Jewish concept of mysticism, uh, a lot of it has been, has been lost. Uh, we often think of mystics as being some Mahatma Gandhi type person, emaciated, walking around with bare feet, uh, very bad, uh, poor diet, uh, someone who would be described perhaps as a super fragile, callous mystic with halitosis. But in any case, uh, we believe that all these things can be found at home. I was in uh, Toronto as a rabbi in Toronto a number of years ago, and we had a class uh, on Kabbalah, on Jewish mysticism, and there was a fellow by the name of David, who was a cameraman, uh, who started coming to the class, and I asked him, uh, I mean, I just talked to most of the people in the class, and I asked him what motivated him to come to the class. And he said uh, he had gone to Dharamsala in India, which is the place where the Dalai Lama, leader of Tibetan Buddhism, is in exile. And uh, he was there for almost two years doing a documentary about the Dalai Lama. And uh, I'm not, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the, the Dalai Lama gives mantras... Uh, that is to say, a word with which to meditate to his closest friends. In other words, he designs a mantra for them and he gives them the word. And uh, David had been there for almost two years and the Dalai Lama had never given him a mantra. And uh, he went to the Dalai Lama towards the end of his visit there and he said, uh, Your Holiness, but here I am, uh, I have given up more or less two years of my life to make this documentary for very little compensation. Uh, living in Dharamsala is in and of itself a sacrifice. Uh, anyone who's been to India will understand what I'm saying. And uh, he, says, he says, and you've never ever given me a mantra. And the Dalai Lama looked at him and he said, David, that's because you already have a mantra. He says, what do you mean? And the Dalai Lama said, you're Jewish, aren't you, David? He said, yes. He says, so your mantra is Shema Yisrael. Hashem Alekeinu Hashem Echad. And uh, this, in psychological terms, freaked out David. And uh, he decided at that point that when he would come back to Toronto, where he lived, he would start looking into his mantra, Shema Yisrael. So what we're trying to do is, we're going to try to look at the concept of reincarnation from the, uh, from the Jewish point of view. And there are many different points of view. As I said, there, is the, there are Eastern understandings of uh, reincarnation. There's also actually an uh, interesting uh, fellow who had the... Uh, pleasure to lecture together with in Detroit uh, by the name of Dr. Brian Weiss, who is a uh, psychiatrist, works in uh, Florida, and uh, he's, um, he wrote a book, Many Masters, Many Lives. His belief in reincarnation, he mentioned, came from his clinical experience. Uh, clearly, it's not a, uh, something which I would put into under scientific methodology, because the type of experience he had is very difficult to duplicate, which is, of course, one of the necessities for a scientific experiment. But nevertheless, it was very fascinating, the uh, type of uh, experience he had. He had a particular woman who was deeply, deeply disturbed, 
and uh, generally his form of therapy was the person would talk talk about what their their lives and he tried to through hypnosis take them back to their youth and to remember aspects of their youth and to talk about it and generally talking about what you've gone through especially if it is a trauma is a cathartic experience and a healing experience when you express it when it comes out and and he felt, and that's how he dealt with uh, that's how he tried to deal with her and he found we went, he regressed her back to her youth but what happened was she kept going but she didn't stop there and she went back to another life apparently and started talking about her life and it was, she described a totally and radically different society apparently from a different culture different time and she talked to her, about herself as a different name and experiences that she'd never gone through in this life and and actually, so you see, he would have he, he at first dismissed this as her imagination. She'd read some novels, etc. But what he found was very interestingly that her talking about these experiences actually helped her, which seemed to indicate to him that in some way her problems were grounded in real experiences, which were not of this life. And after many many years, he reluctantly came to the conclusion that there were that she did have previous lives, and indeed, the human being does have previous lives. He discovered he's Jewish, uh, Dr. Brian Weiss, psychiatrist, chances are he's Jewish. And uh, so, but he is Jewish, and his ancestors from a town called um, Bobov in, uh, uh, sorry, um, Munkac in Hungary, and uh, it was a Hasidic town. And, uh, but anyway, he said he started looking into Judaism. And as a result, uh, and also when, when he heard he heard my lecture and some of the sources. He was very, very pleasantly surprised, he told me, to find that many of the ideas that he had found through his clinical experience, he found and realized were there already in Jewish sources. So now, first of all, let's go back to very, very uh, basic ideas. Uh, we know that uh, in the Torah, maybe we don't, but I'm going to tell you, so you will know, right? But in the Torah, uh, there are many different expressions for death. Just like in English, kick the bucket, etc. Right, so, uh, of course, that's not biblical Hebrew, but nevertheless. Right, so, in the Torah, many different expressions for death. Right, the standard expression is, is Vayamot, and he died. But there's an expression for death, which is specifically used for righteous people. And the Torah, for instance, will say, Vayamot, he expired and he died. Vayesaf elamav, which means, he was gathered to his people. Or, Shachav, in Avotav, he lay down with his ancestors. And it does not mean burial, clearly doesn't mean burial, because the verses say he expired, he died, he was gathered to his people, and he was buried. So obviously, gathering to the people is an indication of there being some type of existence beyond the merely physical, beyond this dimension of our life. We also find the Torah speaks about a punishment called karet. Karet means excision, cutting off of the soul. Very strange. If the soul ceases to exist when the body dies, then there's no one being punished. If there is punishment which is directed at the soul, that means there must be the soul existing beyond the body. And in Jewish understanding, this is logical because we believe that the human is not is not uh, distinguished from the animal world in terms of the body. Body-wise, we are basically animals, as described by an English sociologist, the naked ape. That's what the human being is. Uh, whereas 
Judaism believes that the distinction between the human and the animal is not in the physical, but in the spiritual, the spiritual realm. And that is our soul. And in the physical, however, we believe there are indications of the soul. For example, the uh, Hebrew word, I don't know if we discussed this last time, but the Hebrew word for face is panim. Now, panim is the same letters as the Hebrew word panim, which means inside. The face, actually, is quite different from, from Greek and Latin and English. In, in, in Latin and English, the Latin word face is fasci, right, which is basically means, is connected to the words facade, surface, superficial. Right? All of them have a meaning of something external. Whereas the Hebrew word face means exactly the opposite. It means, panim means internal. Because the face is the one part of the human being which is a window to the internal. Which is an opening to what's inside the human being. It's the one place we can distinguish the presence of a soul. So, that is one of the ideas anyway, that uh, just we find the Hebrew language. But So that soul is something which is not bound by time and space. It's not bound by time, it's not bound by space, it's a spiritual entity. But, for a spiritual entity, in order for the spiritual entity to have a any type of elevation and to achieve... You see, we believe that the soul is here on earth to achieve something. It has to achieve what we call tikkun. Tikkun means perfection. It has to achieve correct perfection. I don't like correction, although it's a correct, uh, it's a correct translation, but I'm always reminded of correctional institutions. Which don't meet, which are not soul places, you know what I mean? <laughs> the New York Department of Correctional Institutions is not a place where they teach you spirituality, at least not that I'm aware of. Right? So anyway, but uh, we, well, I like to think of it as perfection. But the soul has a specific j- a job, a task, to achieve perfection, to achieve closeness to God. To, and, but the soul has to come into this world to do that. Because in the world to come, or rather in the world of souls, there is no challenge, because there's no concealment. Concealment of God is that which is a feature of this world. And be- but it is because of that concealment that the soul has got the ability to choose to have free will. Without free will, then the soul would have really no meaning in its existence. Existence is only given meaning because of the fact that we have choice. We can choose good, we can choose evil, we can go that way, we can go that way, up or down on the moral scale. And that's the whole purpose of the soul being in this world, to be in a world in which it can make decisions, it can have free will. Is what we call in philosophy the Sinatra principle. Frank Sinatra. This is the, the uh, great American philosopher from Hoboken, uh, who said, uh, amongst other things, I mean, the, the famous statement, of course, is, the, is uh, as we know, uh, Aristotle, who said, to do is to be. And Shakespeare, who said, to be or not to be. And Jean-Paul Sartre, who said, to be is to do. Frank Sinatra, who said, do be, do be, do. <laughs> but he also said in a very famous song, I did it my way. Correct. I did it my way. And you see, the whole of uh, Judaism, I'm sure this is what he had in mind, but the whole of Judaism is encapsulated in this concept of I did it my way. That is to say that we are here in this world to do it, not be it being coerced from outside, not by being created perfect or created good, but by making ourselves perfect, by creating ourselves as good. That's really the essence of the human being. This is actually a song 
by another great American, Garth Brooks, I think it is. Right, uh, uh, from the South, like myself. I'm from Australia, so south of the Mason-Dixon line. And uh, so uh, uh, he once said something, I think it was him, who said, you are your own child. Don't forget to be good. It's never too late to have a good childhood. You are your own child because really, and I think the intent of Garth Brooks was clearly a Rashi in the beginning of the Torah, uh, where Rashi, the great biblical commentator, says that the greatest offspring of a human being, the most real offspring of the human being, is the self, the righteous self. Because who I am tomorrow is created by my decisions today. So although my children, bless them, right, are my children, but they are independent beings. They're not really, they're not me. Uh, what is really my truest offspring are not my children. My truest offspring is who I will be in future. And that I create myself. But for the soul to achieve that, the soul needs to be in this world. But the problem with the soul in this world is the problem of computer communication, similar to that anyway. As we know, Computers speak in binary. One zero zero one 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 zero zero one one, etc. Right, whereas the phone lines speak in analog waves. So you've got the computer saying one zero zero one and you've got the phone line going So how do they whoops? Right, so how do they communicate? They communicate by means of a modem. An interface between the digital one zero one zero and the analog, the phone. Okay. So now, the same is true of the soul. The soul is a spiritual thing. Cannot, it cannot re- interact with this world. How does it interact with this world? It has an interface, a modem. What's the modem of the soul? The body. That's correct. The person. The body is that which allows the soul to have an impact and act on this world and allows this world to have an impact on the soul. So without that body, the soul cannot interact. So we have a principle that the soul is here to achieve a level of perfection. Obviously, it cannot achieve total perfection. That only belongs to God. But to achieve some level of perfection. And the soul requires a vehicle for that. The vehicle for the soul is the body. And in fact, the body protects the soul, encases the soul, the lowest level of the soul, which is in contact with this world, is surrounded, encased by the body. The body allows the soul to walk through this world. It allows the delicate soul to interact with the physical world. In that way, the Kabbalists say, a very interesting idea, the Kabbalists say that the best metaphor for what the body does for the soul is what the shoe does for the body. Think about it. The body, where does the body connect to the ground? The shoe, the foot. The lowest level of the body is the foot. That's it, in contact with the earth. But the foot is a delicate thing. The foot has a hard time without a shoe, without any foot, any footwear. So the shoe encases and protects the lowest level of the body and allows it to ambulate through this world. If we think, think of the places in the Torah, in Judaism, where the shoe is mentioned, and you will understand why the Kabbalists say this. We'll have a new insight into how the Torah works. For example, first place that shoes are mentioned in the Torah. Anyone know? First place that a shoe is mentioned. Moses sees the burning bush, and God tells Moses, take off your shoes. The next time a shoe is mentioned, 
I mean, in a similar context, actually, Joshua sees an angel. Angel speaks to him. What's the angel say to Joshua? Take off your shoes. Strange. I mean, you know, in Toronto, we used to say that when the kids came in the house because they always had salt and snow and stuff. Take your shoes off, right? You know, there's, why is this a holy place? Yeah, my house is a holy place. Take your shoes off, right? But but you see, God tells this to Moses and to Joshua. We find also where else is shoe mentioned? The priests, the high priests, the priests in the temple in Jerusalem did not wear shoes. Even today, when a Kohen, a descendant of those priests, when he goes up to bless the uh, Jews on a festival, does not wear shoes. So the priests in the temple didn't wear shoes either. What is the significance of all these places? Very simple. God is telling Moses, you are achieving prophecy now. Divest yourself of the physical. Take off the shoe is a symbol of doing what? Relating on a completely spiritual level. Joshua has a prophecy. The, the, the angel tells him, take off your shoes. That is to say, relate on the spiritual level. The priests in the temple are not meant to be there as, as like physical human beings. They're meant to be almost like angelic. One day a year, one day a year, we ignore the physical. There's one day a year where Jews ignore the I mean, generally, we're not known for ignoring the physical. You know, you think of how many days of feasting there are in the Jewish calendar. How many days you're obligated to, to feast? Anyone know? Approximately? Uh, you're close. Very close. About 85 days a year you're obligated to feast. How many days are you obligated to fast? Six. It's like a 13 to 1 ratio of feasting. We're not an ascetic religion. We were described by one sociologist as gastrocentric. He said that the Jewish calendar is basically... They tried to kill us, we survived, let's see. Right, but that's really, there is one day a year, however, when we totally ignore the body. We, we come before God as if we were totally spiritual. What day is that? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And one of the features of the observance of the Day of Atonement, aside from not eating and drinking, is we don't wear leather shoes. Now, do we understand the significance of that now? Keeping in mind what we said, keeping in mind the pattern of shoes in the Torah, not wearing the shoe is saying what? I come before you, God, only as a soul, not as a body. Today is one day that I ignore the body. And why leather specifically? Because leather was once, it was once a body, correct? Right. A vinyl was not a body ever. Neither was a canvas, or a polyester, or a norgahide, etc. Right? A, but the leather shoe was once a body. And therefore, the symbolism of taking it off is a way of saying, I come before God as a soul. That's what the body is. And we find that the Torah alludes to the concept, and this concept in one other commandment, there's a very strange, strange commandment in the Torah. Very strange. I mean, there are a lot of commandments which are simple, easy to understand. Sabbath, very beautiful, very easy to understand, very pleasant. Right? Giving charity, obvious. Don't steal, obvious. But there's a couple of commandments which we call chukim, very difficult to understand. One of them is the following. If two brothers, this is found in Deuteronomy 25, two brothers who are living uh, at the same time on this planet, and one of them, God forbid, dies, and he does not have children. Now, his surviving brother now has a mitzvah, an obligation, to marry the widow of the dead brother. Anyone heard of this? It's called yibum, or in English, levirate marriages. Not that that tells you a darn thing, right? Levirate. 
you know, English translations are weird sometimes. They, you know, levirate marriage. Anyway, so I mean, Hebrew translations of English are also strange. I was at a Marx Brothers movie in Israel, and um, they had subtitles in Hebrew. And uh, Harpo, a Groucho, was trying to teach Harpo to say the word surprise. So they got soup and rice. And he's going soup, rice, soup, rice, soup, rice, soup, rice, surprise. And in the Hebrew subtitles, it's got marak ores, marak ores, marak ores, hafta up. And, like, no one in the cinema is laughing except for me. <laughs> because the Hebrew for soup is marak, the Hebrew for rice is ores, and the Hebrew for surprise is haftaah. Right? It doesn't work in subtitles. Yeah, it just doesn't work. Anyway, certain things don't work. Like the, uh, the Hebrew movie title for God, the Godfather, when it was in Israel, was Hasandek. Now, as you know, the Sundake is the man that holds the child during the circumcision. But that's the closest English equivalent, Hebrew equivalent, we have to Godfather. So, you know, uh, it's a little strange. Anyway, so as I was saying, we have the Mitzvah of Yibum, where the surviving, I digress, right, but we have the Mitzvah of Yibum, where the surviving brother is obligated to marry the widow of his dead brother. Why? The Zohar, which is the central text of the Jewish mystical tradition, says the following. It says, you see, this man who died, his soul did not achieve completion. It did not leave on this world a vehicle that would now carry on the job. A child, descendants, didn't do that. So, if we want it, and his soul is destined to return. His soul must return. Because you cannot, if you have to achieve close to perfection, one lifetime is a pathetically small amount of time to do that. What's a lifetime? 70, 80, 90, 100 years? A lifetime is not a long time. And how much of that lifetime is spent in perfecting the soul? Take off until you're 20, where you're battling with hormones. Okay, it's first 20 years, goodbye. So what about the rest of it? How much time are you sleeping? I mean, according to the mattress commercials, a third of your life. I wish. Right? But uh, let's say a third of your life. I suppose it depends how many lectures you go to. But in any case... Um, you, so, you know, a third of the life. So, you, how much is left for spiritual perfection? It's not a heck of a lot of time. Then a lot of the time that you're awake, you're doing things which are essential and important, like flossing, right? But it's not exactly you're achieving, you're not achieving a spiritual perfection while flossing your teeth. Maybe you are, I don't know. Depends how well you do it, right? But, depends what your intents are. But, nevertheless, right, one lifetime is not enough. So, this brother who died has died incomplete, like a cut off tree. And his soul must come back. And it needs a vehicle. What would be the, the, the shoe that fits that foot the best? I.e., what would be the body that is the best vehicle for the soul of the deceased brother? Well, if his brother and his soulmate, his wife, his widow, if they have a child, that child will be the ideal shoe, so to speak. The ideal vehicle for the brother's soul. He'll be a reincarnation of his brother. And that mitzvah, the Zohar, explains completely in the context of reincarnation, which explains also another strange aspect of that commandment, which hopefully you should now understand. What happens if the brother does not want to marry the widow? The, you know, the, the rabbi says, look, you're going to have to marry her. And he says, I don't like her. I never liked her. Right? I thought my brother was an idiot for marrying her. Right? So why, I mean, so I don't want to marry her. 
So the rabbi tells him, look, it's a major, it's a big mitzvah. It's a tremendous, tremendous thing. You're giving now a body to your brother's soul. He says, I don't want it. So what, is he, what happens? He has his shoe. He goes to court. And in front of the court, the widow removes his shoe. And he is called and spits in front of him. And he is called the house, the man whose shoe was removed. What's the significance of his shoe being removed? What it's saying is, he was not willing, he was not willing, he didn't want to give of himself for his brother's soul. So he is declared as someone undeserving of his own body, i.e. undeserving of his own shoe. So therefore, we have an idea, throughout the Torah, there's a consistent symbolism. This is just a, just a general rule, parenthetically. When you look into the Torah... We always, you know, there, there are certain features which are strange. It's always, if you, if you look back at the first place something is mentioned, that generally is the key to understanding everything about that particular word or idea for the rest of the Torah. So if you look at the first place the shoe is mentioned, Moses removing the shoe, and you understand it's a divestment of the physical, and the shoe is a symbol of the physical body, all subsequent mentions of the shoe will fall into that. And that's really, that's a very important idea, just, to, just in general, not just in this subject, but in general, understanding the Torah and understanding Judaism. So now, that is one idea of reincarnation. The Zohar says, alluded to in this command, another source for it is uh, the verse in Deuteronomy, where, Deuteronomy 32, God says, See now, I am he, there is no God like me. I put to death, ani amit God says, I put to death and bring to life, I strike down and I heal. The commentaries point out that there's a little bit of a discrepancy here. Chronologically, there's a problem, isn't there? He says, I put to death and I bring to life, I, I make sick and I heal. Now, make sick and heal, that's correct chronological order. Make sick first, then heal. But I put to death and give life is not in the correct order. Usually, we understand that life precedes death. So it should say, I give life and then death, I give sickness and then I heal. Instead it says, I give death and then life, sickness and then heal. Implication being, that life is not a begin, is not the first, right? There is death, there is life, it's cycles. It's many cycles. Okay, many lives and many cycles of lives. And that is the, those are some of the sources in the Torah and in the, uh, in, the in Mishnaic sources, the Zohar, in actually for the Jewish concept of, uh, of reincarnation. And we, and the Zohar, in fact, when it goes through the text of the Torah, there are many, numerous places where the Zohar understands things as alluding to the idea of reincarnation. Many famous personalities who are considered to be reincarnations. I'll give you uh, one example of that. Uh, we find there are very two great sages, Shammai and Hillel. Anyone heard of Shammai and Hillel? Shammai and Hillel lived, uh, lived uh, about 2,200, 2,300 years ago. Shammai and Hillel had uh, a number of arguments in the Talmud. They were, they were good friends, but they argued on a number of legal issues. And that a total of five arguments altogether. Only five. Okay. Uh, however... Uh, what's interesting was, and I'll give you one example, one, one classic case. Um, Shammai was, uh, was asked, a non-Jew came to Shammai and said, I'd like to convert to Judaism. Shammai said, that's good. 
And he said, however, on condition. He says, on condition that you teach me the Torah while standing on one foot. I, I, just, I, want, I want the condensed version. I want the whole thing just like that. Shammai said, get out of here. You want to become Jewish? Don't make conditions. You don't join the club and say, I'd like to join the chess club, but as long as it becomes a contact sport when I play. No, the chess association says, go jump in the lake. So that's what Shammai said to him. He said, no, don't jump in the mikvah, jump in the lake. You know, we're not all interested. So then he came to Hillel, and Hillel said to him, no problem. No problem. And Hillel, a very famous statement, Hillel said, okay, you ready? The guy says, yeah, I'm ready. He says, that which is hateful unto you, don't do unto your friend. The rest is commentary, go and learn. And there are a couple of cases like that. So the, the, the Zohar, actually the Arizal, Rabbi Takluria says, he says, Shammai was a reincarnation of Moses. Hillel was a reincarnation of Aaron, the brother of Moses. We know, if you look back in the Torah, the characteristic of Aaron was, he was the ultimate communicator. He was beloved by the Jewish people as the great communicator. Confident in his skills. Moses was not a great communicator. What does Moses say about himself? He was heavy of mouth. He was not a great communicator. And it's interesting, he was the brilliant scholar. He was the receptacle of Torah. He knew everything. Absolutely everything. He was all there in his mind. But he was not the great communicator. When Moses died, it says, and he was mourned by the house of Israel. When Aaron died, it says, he was mourned by the entire house of Israel. The Talmud says, oh, just, oh, just a second. There's a subtlety here. In one place, it says he was mourned by the house of Israel, Moses. With Aaron, it says he was mourned by the entire house of Israel. What does that teach us? Aaron was more popular because he was a better communicator. Moses was the, was the, in, the great intellectual, the font of Torah, the receptacle of Torah. He wasn't as good a communicator. Shammai and Hillel were the same thing. Shammai was not as popular. He was not a good communicator, but he was much more brilliant than Hillel. Hillel, however, was the great communicator. And they both had in them a certain aspect of the soul of Moses, one the aspect of the soul of, of Aaron. So we find very often this idea the, uh, that the Talmud, uh, Talmud says. Now, what are some of the philosophical implications? What are the implications for us of the whole idea of reincarnation? What, what is the difference? I mean, I'm not aware, usually, unless I go into uh, regression therapy or something like that, I'm not aware of my past lives. Right? We don't know about them. What is the implication for us? I think, first of all, one major aspect is, of the, uh, is that I, I think this is very important, especially uh, for many people today, is the idea that our life has a very, very specific purpose, which is irreplaceable. In other words, the fact that my soul has to come back again and again is indicative of the fact that what needs to be done can only be done by me. There is no one else who can fulfill my task on earth, except for me. And if I don't fulfill it this lifetime, it has to be another lifetime. And that's a painful process. The soul does not want to come back. It's worth it for us to try and do it this time, because the soul, as we, as we preceded by saying, is a spiritual being. The soul in this world is, is, is out of place. It's in exile. There's a certain pain, a loneliness, a, a discomfort, an out-of-placeness, 
and otherworldliness the soul experiences, the painful thing to come into this world. The baby, like the baby crying when it comes out of the womb into this world. The baby in the womb, what could be better? What could be better? Floating in the amniotic fluid, everything including oxygen taken care of by the mother. The baby needs nutrients, where does it get it from? The mother. The mother has a craving, right? Baby takes the nutrient, mother has a craving. It's all there. I mean, for some strange reason, all my children, the nutrient that they most needed was Ben and Jerry's Heath Bar Crunch, for some reason. There's no medical explanation for this at the moment. But anyway, but that's the idea. The idea is that, that, that it, 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 it screams coming into a world. It's, it, it's, that's the soul. Right? The soul is coming into this world, and the soul is not, is not pleased with it. So, so on the one hand, we want to have, we want to achieve as much as possible as we can. But we know that it may not be possible in this lifetime, but it's important for us to know that what can be achieved and what needs to be achieved can only be achieved by this soul, by Mordechai Becha, and no one else. Can't, no one else can do it. So that's, that's, that's a very important philosophical implication. Also, this teaches us another idea. Very often things that happen to us, we don't understand why something happens to us. We don't understand why this person suffers, or this person prospers, and we don't understand why specific circumstances, there are, there's, there's a whole other lecture in itself, obviously is one of the most profound questions, and one of the, uh, not profound questions, but one of the most disturbing questions, and has been asked throughout history, but at least the Kabbalists, one of the approaches of Kabbalah to this question is the idea of reincarnation. Let me give you an example. Story is told, I believe it was the Baal Shem Tov, founder of the Hasidic movement, in the 1700s, early 1700s, he was, uh, instead of going to his normal prayer service in the morning, he gathered, he called for the Mohel, the circumciser, and eight other men, and he said to them, we're going, let's get into the carriage, we need to go somewhere. And they said, where? He says, we, we just got to go. They get into the carriage, it's snowy, it's a terrible, terrible weather, and they start travelling. And the Baal Shem Tov tells the carriage driver, make a right here, left here, keep going. They're going further and further away from the city, it's terrible weather. And they stop at a small cabin, small house out in Europe, somewhere in Podolia, small cabin surrounded by snow. And they come to the door, they knock at the door, man opens the door, he sees the Baal Shem Tov and he starts crying. And he says, thank you. And they walk in, and the Hasidim are confused. The Baal Shem Tov seems to know exactly what's going on. And this fellow says, thank God you're here. He says, I had a son eight days ago. Son eight days ago. Eighth day is the time that he needs circumcision. He says, I didn't want to take him out. I was scared it's been snowing for eight days. To take him out in this weather, I was scared for his life. And life takes precedence. But, I, but when would he have a circumcision? I just didn't know what to do. And here you are, and the Baal Shem Tov says, we have a minion, we have a circum, the Mohel, right, let's do the circumcision. So they do the circumcision, and they say the blessings, they give the child his name, and they gave him the name, parent gave him the name, Yosef, Yosef, and little Yosef is circumcised, and they sit around, they have a Lachayim, the child, mother takes the child into the next room and nurses him, and there's a terrible scream from the mother. Come into the room, the child has died. The child has died. 
and the minion to celebrate the circumcision turns into a minion to bury the child, and in whatever way they can, to sit with the parents, cannot comfort them at this point, nothing you can say, but to sit and to sympathize, to share in the sorrow. And they did this until nightfall, and then they left. And the atmosphere in the carriage on the way back, very different than on the way there, confusion, what was happening here. And I asked the Baal Shem Tov, explain to us what went on. Explain to us what went on. The Baal Shem Tov said, today was the yard site, the anniversary of the death of Rabbi Yosef Karo. Yosef Karo was the author of the Code of Jewish Law, a great scholar and Kabbalist who lived in Sfat, in Israel, north of Israel, city of Safed, in the 17th century. And the, the, only about 120 years or so before this story. And the Malshemta said, as you know, he said, Rebosef Karo was born at a time when there was a cholera epidemic. It was considered dangerous for the child to be circumcised at the eighth day, at the eighth day. They generally waited until he was he- older, healthier, more robust, and then they circumcised him. He said the soul of Rabbi Yosef Karo needed one more action in this world to achieve its state of perfection. What was that action? Circumcision on the eighth day. And he said, today is the anniversary of the death, and you said, and he said, the parents, and we believe that the name that a parent gives a child in a religious ceremony, like being called to the Torah or a circumcision, is a certain amount of prophetic insight. And they gave this child the name Yosef. He says, this was the soul of Yosef Karo, who came into this world for one purpose, circumcision on the eighth day. And they said to him, but, but what about the parents? What about the father, the mother? He said, he said, each one has a separate calculation. Every single thing that happens is calculated. It's there. There's providence here. All I know, he says, all I know is one part of the picture. I can explain to you the baby. Can I explain to you the suffering of the mother? No. Can I explain to you the father? No. Maybe if we knew more, we could explain that. But I can explain the child. Can explain the child. That's the story of the child. It's an amazing, amazing insight. And he didn't tell the parents then, because as we know, the Talmud says, the appropriate response to someone who's in the time of suffering is what? Silence. Silence. Sit with them and sympathize. If they want to open a conversation, fine. But you're not there to cheer them up. You're there to sit with them, sympathize and share in the sorrow. And they don't want philosophical explanations. You're not going to tell them at that time, oh, you know what? You call him yourself, love it. Forget it. But he came back and he told them a year later, on the yard side of that child, he told them at that time, and they understood. They accepted it. So that's one idea. There's another aspect of that also, is in terms of people, the value of the soul in this planet, on this earth. The soul being here, even if the soul interacts on a very minimal level with anyone else, there is a quality of that life which is not measurable, spiritual. Because the only way the soul can achieve perfection is being on this earth. What if the soul is inside a body which is in a state of a coma? 
Is anything happening to the soul? Is the soul interacting? Judaism says yes. You cannot make a quality of life assessment here and say, yeah, but what's the soul doing? The soul is on this earth. And if other people are reacting with sympathy to this person, if other people are inspired to pray, to care for this person, to care for the family, to act appropriately, to do the right thing, then, and they are doing it because of that soul, then what is happening to that soul? That soul is being elevated. You cannot judge how the quality of life of the soul from what is happening to the body. The soul has an infinite quality to its life. The soul is spiritual. And I'll give you an example of this. There's a great rabbi, Isaiah Karelitz, Rabbi Isaiah Karelitz, otherwise known as the Chazon Ish, who lived in Bnei Barak in Israel, actually one of the founders. He lived in Bnei Barak in Israel in the 50s. He died, I think, in the 50, late 50s. And a woman I know, she runs a school for developmentally disabled children in Jerusalem. Her name is Mrs. Gottlieb. And uh, she, uh, she's an expert in that field. And she was told by a mother of one of the students in the school who was severely disabled, developmentally, uh, mentally disabled, that she had gone to the Chazon Ish with the child. She had gone to visit the Chazon Ish with this child. And when she walked in, the Chazon Ish stood up. This is very unusual. The Chazon Ish at the time was in his 70s. He was not a well man. And he was also one of the greatest rabbis in the world. So he generally, people walked in, he didn't like stand up for them. Usually he sat there and you consulted with him, etc. Here she brings in a small child, I don't know how old he was, but she brings in a child, developmentally disabled, and he stands up to his full posture when they walk in. And then he sits down, they talk for a while, and as the child leaves, he stands up again. And the mother asks, please, why did you stand up? She knew it was unusual. Why did you stand up? He said the answer is very simple. He said, the soul is here to achieve perfection. If a soul is in this world and it can only interact on a very, very minimum level, even though it is our obligation to try to enhance as much as possible the degree to which the soul can interact, it's our obligation to as much as possible help such a person. But there is a limitation here, clearly. And if the soul has a very limited interaction with the world, what does that mean about what the soul still has to achieve? Does it have to achieve a lot or a very small amount? What would you say? A very small amount. He says, therefore, he says, the Chazanist said, what we see in front of us is a soul at the end of its journey. It is a soul that has neared perfection. Very near perfection. He says, rarely does one come across a soul that I can guarantee is near perfection. He says, but your child, when he walked in here, I immediately knew that here is a soul, and so I stood up to give respect to a soul which is near the end of its journey, which is a soul that's close to perfection. Mother cried. I told this at a, uh, I told this at a gateway seminar last time. There's a fellow in the audience. He and his mother came over to me. And they said their, his sister, he said, who was, his mother could not speak, but he said his sister, who was 21, severely developmentally disabled, just passed away the previous year. And he said that never ever felt any type of, they never had an understanding, they never had a, a feeling that, that, of acceptance of what, 
what had happened and, and, and ha- of her interaction with the world until you heard that story. Until you heard that story. And, and it's, an, it's a very powerful idea, but that's also part of the, one of the philosophical implications, again, of the idea of, of reincarnation. And indeed, that I think is probably, again, another important aspect of it. So, uh, so those are, again, some of the sources for reincarnation in the Torah. Some of the ways the mystical sources explain ideas in the Torah using the concept of reincarnation. And some of the philosophical implications of reincarnation for us. Perhaps a more practical aspect of reincarnation is that which the Talmud says. The Talmud writes of a debate between uh, one of the Caesars and Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Jew to the Prince. And this Roman Caesar said, I don't understand how you can believe in that. He said, that which was will cease to be. So certainly, that which ceases to be will certainly not come back again. He used what's called a fortiori logic. How much more so? The Roman emperor said, if what is will cease to be, then what is not certainly will not come back. And Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, Jew to the prince, said to him, no, that's not how Jews look at it. We look at it differently. We say the following, that which was not in existence comes into existence. That which was once in existence, how much more so will it come again? You see, the Romans looked at our existence as a given. I'm here. I'm here and I won't be. How much more so will I not come back? But the Jew, we don't take anything for granted. We say, I was not. Something that wasn't becomes something. Something that is, how much more so will it continue? Because the essence of the human being, as we understand it, is not the body, it's the soul. True. The body the body decays, the body goes, but the soul remains vigorous, the soul remains healthy, or rather, I should put it differently, the health of the body is not totally in our hands. We care as much as we can for it, we do as much as we can for it. Medical science, etc., etc. But the soul and its health are totally within our hands. Totally. Everything the Talmud says is in the hands of heaven, except for one thing, fear of heaven. Everything is in the hands of God except for our relationship to God. That's totally within our hands. And that's for us to create our future and our soul. And that's the idea, again, is that we're here for a purpose. We have to seek that out, try to achieve it, and and understand that only we can actually achieve that purpose. And that's, the that's I think, the central concept of reincarnation and of the idea. Uh, the word for reincarnation, of course, is Gilgul in Hebrew. And Gilgul means a cycle, a cycle of renewal. And a very beautiful idea, which I think perhaps is very necessary in our time. I mean, I just read, on the, read in the news of a uh, four-month-old baby who was killed by Arabs, Jewish baby who was killed by Arabs in Hebron, and uh, father was wounded, brother was wounded. A child is a child. And I feel for Palestinian children who are dead as well. But you don't see them in the news described as Palestinian militant child. This is a Jewish settler child. Had it said Jewish baby killed, that would have been a different story. But it was a Jewish baby killed. But in these times, I think we need to understand, we need to understand that, uh, that, that, that the Jewish people also go in cycles. And our calendar is a lunar calendar. 
And there's a very specific reason for that. Because if you look at the sun, the sun has no cycle, which is apparent. It's always the same. The moon disappears and appears and disappears and appears. And the Jewish people are like the moon. There's waxing and the waning. And that we, just as we know, that at the beginning of the month, you can barely see that we're now at the beginning of the month of Nisan, which is a month of redemption of the Jews from Egypt. And on Saturday at 5 p.m., and about 14 minutes after 5 in Jerusalem was the new moon. First appearance, the sliver of that new moon. And as we know, that will become a full moon, and that full moon will celebrate the redemption from Egypt when we sit down and eat Seder, have the Seder night with Pesach. So we also know and believe that the Jewish people also will go in cycles like that. And may we all merit, the Jewish people also should come as, full, as a full moon and to merit the redemption once again as we did when God took us out of Egypt. Thank you very much.